Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. Whether that's because you had to talk to the lawyer at your office or whether that's because you had to buy a home and you had to go see the lawyer at the title place. Whenever you sort of talk to lawyers, there is this sort of legalese. There is this dense language that they go to law school to figure out that the rest of us just kind of go, yeah, I'm paying you a lot of money. You just tell me, please, just do I sign there or not, right? Is it my house or their house? I don't, you just, right? It's so dense and every single word, when you sort of get those giant contracts, every single word is just so loaded with meaning. This is why we hire lawyers because they're the ones who sort of unspin that incredibly dense language that most of us sort of look at and just shake our heads, shrug our shoulders and go, I'd I'd never make it through that. Even if I understood all the words on that page, I, I, I just can't, right? The language is just so dense. We know what this is like because we also have language that we can use to sort of exclude other people, right? Sort of insider language. Some of you uh, have a job that might be highly technical, right? And you absolutely know how to make feel, someone feel out of place when you start getting real technical around them, right? When you start talking about, oh, the TCPIP socket's way out of line. You're going to need to w- re- reset your router and uh, come on back for another day. Re- most of us go, um... I'm, I'm out, right? We know what sort of insider language is, language that can exclude other people. And we also know that certain culture has language, right? Every sort of culture, even if it speaks the same language, can have different nuances about it. Think about how many ways that British people say things differently than we do, right? So we have this sort of idea that we understand that language can be dense, that language can be culturally couched and mean things different in different areas, and that language can be insider language. When we come to this phrase that we're looking at today, in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, we sort of have all of those things crashing together. Of all of the sort of statements in the Apostles' Creed, this one may be the densest one of all. The one where almost every single one of these words is meaningful, is significant. This is also sort of insider language because a lot of these words are words that we don't commonly use in everyday life, right? Well, some of them are, some of them aren't, right? We don't use the word Christ in everyday language. In fact, by and large, most people assume it's a surname. And so this isn't just an example of insider language. It's if you didn't grow up in the church... Most people who didn't grow up in the church think that Christ is Jesus' last name. And so it's a little bit difficult to understand. It's dense. It's rich. And not only that, but it's culturally different. The word Lord has huge implications to the people who heard it when it was first written that we all sort of shake off. For us, Lord means one of two things. Either Lord means sort of some fancy British person who the queen gave some land to, or Lord means a just synonym with God. And so as we look at this, I want to just sort of tear apart and uh, just break down uh, every piece of this, and starting with just the word Christ. 
So the word Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Um, the word Christ actually is his title. So the way we would call somebody Mr. or Mrs. or Doctor or Reverend or Chief or Mayor, the, the way that we would sort of attach that to somebody's name, a title, that is Christ is a title of Jesus. And it comes from the Old Testament and it means the one who is anointed, the one who is going to fulfill all that the Old Testament has led up to. And so when we, just in affirming that we, saying that Jesus Christ, we're affirming that Jesus is the Messiah that the entire Old Testament points to. But then when we say that he is the son of God, we are saying that he is the second person of God. When we say he's the son of God, that doesn't mean that God had a child, but rather that God has chosen to reveal himself to us as three persons in one. That is who God is. And the second person he calls the Son. Jesus didn't have a beginning. He has always existed. He has always been a part of who God is. And yet he has existed as a separate person. And so the language that we use, the language that the Bible uses to describe this relationship, is the Son of God. This is something difficult for us. Anytime we talk about the fact that God exists in three persons, but is one God, our brains start to break down. Right? Every analogy we come up with is ultimately a bad analogy. Right? Most of us have heard at one time or another, if we've been in the church, well, uh, God is like water. It can be liquid and gas and ice. Right? That's, that's not accurate. That's, that's actually heresy. Right? We've heard that God is like an egg, that there's the shell, the white, and the yolk. That's, that's not accurate either. That's, that's, that's heresy. That's bad. We've heard things like, well, you know, I'm a father, I'm a son, and I'm a husband. God's kind of like that. No, that's, that's also heresy. Um, that's, that's very bad doctrine, all three of those. They're, the problem is, is that we're trying to put words to something that is beyond us. I, I read an analogy that, that this week that was great. Imagine that you were a square, a two-dimensional thing on a sheet of paper. And maybe you've got some friends in their triangles, and maybe you've got some friends in their circles. Maybe you've got that weird, you know, hexagon friend who comes around sometimes you don't like so much. You've got all these friends, and they're all flat, two-dimensional shapes, right? And then Octagon comes along, and Octagon tells you, by the way, there is this thing called cube. And it's kind of like you square... But in other ways, it's way more than you could possibly understand because the only thing you've ever experienced is two-dimensional life, right? Square, cube is like you, but it's different, and I don't even quite have the words to wrap around it. It's like you beside you, stacked on top of you with you all around it. That doesn't make sense, right? A square trying to explain a cube doesn't work. The same is true because we are God's creatures. We talked about this last week. We are sort of a lower order of being. We cannot accurately and fully explain everything about God. We are like squares trying to describe a cube. And so while we can get close in some areas, we can definitely say there's corners like square we can never fully capture who God is. 
And the last sort of word that's significant here is the word Lord. We think that this is just something that we believe that that's just another name for God. But when the people who heard this statement, Jesus is Lord, one of the earliest things that the Christians said that was the core of their faith, when they said that, when a Christian in ancient Rome would say the statement, Jesus is Lord, it would have given people, it would have shocked people. Right? If I were to say to you, the earth is flat, with conviction and with that I really believe this, most of you would would do a double take. Right? Wait, uh, uh, Magellan, I, uh, no, uh, space, moon. I mean, we, we just, we, no, how, how, what are you, what are you saying? I can't understand this. When, when the Christians said Jesus is Lord, it would have had the same effect because everybody in the time of Jesus was conditioned with this. There is one name under heaven and earth by which you can be saved. And that name is Caesar Augustus. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the one to whom you owe your allegiance and your life. Caesar is the one who says you live. Caesar is the one who says you die. And if you don't like it, we have a special form of punishment for people who challenge Caesar's lordship. We hang you naked from a cross and embarrass you in front of everybody so that you are reminded who is actually Lord of the world. So when Christians said, Jesus is Lord, other Romans would have probably audibly gasped. That was a shocking, subversive statement. It was a statement that was real and political. But even more so, it was a statement that was spiritual. And so what I want to do today is I want to walk through the ways that Jesus was Messiah, the way that we sort of think of him as the Christ, the anointed one. But I want to walk through it with this in mind. Whether we're Christians or not this morning, you and I struggle to treat Jesus as Lord. Whether we're a Christian or not, whether we believe in Jesus or not, we struggle to treat Him as if He is the Lord. So here's what I'm going to do. I want you to stand up. We're going to read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And hear the word of God this morning. So please stand with me as I read. St. Paul said this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated.
Paul makes this statement and says that Jesus humbled himself to the point of being born as a man. And that not only did he do that, but he humbled himself to the point of death. That he humbled himself to the point of being crucified by the Romans. The very Romans who claimed that their king, Caesar, was Lord, killed Jesus. But we don't treat Jesus like he is Lord. In the Old Testament, there were three different uh, jobs, roles that you could have uh, that you needed to be anointed for, that you could be anointed for. They were uh, prophets, priests, and kings. Those were sort of the three roles. And it's interesting because each part of that, the prophet, the priest, and the king in the Old Testament, all point forward to who Jesus is. All point forward to him as Lord. And so when we look at Jesus, we see that he is Lord because he was the great prophet. He shows us and tells us who God is. You know, it's interesting when we think of this, Paul tells us that he had the, hey, excuse me, words that want to come out there. It's easy for you to say. It tells us that he took on the form of a servant. When he does this, this isn't as if God is doing something new. It isn't as if God said, you know what? I've been Lord for a long time. Let's give this servant thing a go. No, this has always been who God is. It has always been in God's nature. And so one of the things that Jesus does as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the Christ, is he reveals to us who God is. That God is a servant. God loves others. But the other thing that he does is he shows us who we are not. If he shows God to be holy, he also shows us that we are not. If he shows God to be good, he shows us when we are not. If he shows God as loving and patient, he shows us when we are hot-headed and angry. You see, the role of the prophet was not just to show who God was, but it was also to remind people who they are. And Jesus, as Lord, as the great prophet, the one that all the prophets were leading up to, does the same thing. But you and I don't like to be reminded of who we are. We don't like to be told who God is and how we don't measure up to that. Do we? We don't like Jesus to be Lord in that way. We don't like a God who critiques us, do we? And yet if we are going to truly confess and affirm that Jesus is indeed Lord, that he is the Christ, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, do we let God critique us? Or do we have a God who believes all the same things we do? Who hates the things we hate, loves the things we love, gets mad at the things that we get mad about, and doesn't ever make us uncomfortable? More often than not, that's what we do. 
you know, it's interesting. God created us in his image, but we are constantly trying to remake him and remodel him after our image. We're trying to turn the cube into a square. Jesus was the great prophet. As Messiah, he showed us who God is. He reminds us who we are. Do we let him critique us? You know, it's interesting that if we do, if we do let him critique us, what we'll find is that we are found wanting. Which leads directly to the idea that Jesus is our great high priest. The book of Hebrews makes a huge deal about how Jesus is the high priest that everything in the Old Testament anticipated. Everything in the Old Testament was a shadow cast backwards from what Jesus did. The Old Testament tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so the people throughout the Old Testament would again and again and again go to the temple and offer these sacrifices for their sins. All of this pointed ahead. All of this pointed ahead to the anointed one, Jesus, the Messiah who was coming, who is both the priest and the sacrifice. So that when he dies for us on the cross, we don't have to offer any more lambs and goats. We don't have to offer any more bulls before him. Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. He has been our priest who reconciles us. One of the jobs of the priest was that the priest stood between two parties who were apart from one another and brought them back together. He did this between humans, and the priest would also do this between the person and God. This is the role that Jesus fulfills in us and for us. He reconciles us to God. We, because of our choices, because of our choices to walk away, to go our own way, to not live as if Jesus is Lord, are estranged from God, are far away from God. And because of his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus reconciles us to him. And he doesn't just do this once and then tell us, okay, good, you're on your own. Do better. He continues to do this. He is right now praying for you, Christian, before the Father. He is our high priest who does not rest and does not weary. And what's interesting is that this should comfort us. As much as seeing Jesus as the the prophet that the Old Testament looked forward to critiques us, seeing Jesus as the priest should comfort us. But the only way that this is a comfort to us is if we think we need it. Which sometimes I don't. I don't think I need this all the time, which is just not true. I think that I'm doing okay. You know what? Yet last week, I definitely needed Jesus to be my high priest. I definitely needed him to bring me back to God. But this week, not so much. I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing all right. I haven't I have hardly sinned this week. So, Jesus, you can probably go be a high priest for somebody else this week because I've kind of I'm doing pretty well. The the word for this that we don't like to use is self-righteousness. Whenever we think that we do not need Jesus to be continually reconciling us to God, 
is when we're believing that I can take care of myself. That I can be my own Messiah. I can work and prove my value to God. Which we do. Go back and look at your arguments with those that are closest to you. If you are honest and start tracing that thread, what you're going to find more often than not is you trying to prove your own self-righteousness. You said this. You did this. I did everything right. And you hurt me. How often do our arguments grow out of our own sense of self-righteousness and self-entitlement? We need a great priest. But Jesus is not only anticipated by the prophets of the Old Testament, not only anticipated by the priests of the Old Testament, but also by the kings. In fact, one of the things that we'll talk about next week is that Jesus was born of the line of David. He was in the kingly line of blood lineage. And so Jesus teaches us to be citizens of a new kingdom. If we say Jesus is Lord, what we are saying is no matter who is in the White House, Jesus is greater. Whether you are more frustrated by the 44th or 45th presidents, no matter what you think about who the 46th president is going to be, when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying that at the end of the day, that isn't the ultimate reality. There is something more. When we say Jesus is Lord... We are saying that he is the one to whom we owe our ultimate allegiance. He is the one who gets to tell us wrong from right. And he is the one that we have to judge all of our other thoughts and all of our other relationships by. This is where it gets dangerous and subversive. There's a scene in Parks and Recreation, the TV show where Ron Swanson, um, sort of this red-blooded American man, kind of all the sort of tropes about manhood, goes into a restaurant and he's frustrated about something and he sits down at this breakfast counter and he says, I'll take all your bacon and eggs. And the, the waiter kind of shakes his head, scratches down on his pad and starts to walk away. And, and this character in the TV show says, whoa, 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 stop, stop, wait. I'm afraid you misheard me. I'm afraid you heard me say I want all your bacon and eggs and you thought I meant I want a lot of bacon and eggs. That's not what I said. Bring me all of your bacon and all of your eggs. When somebody says something like that, we're not used to to how weighty that should be. We assume that it's hyperbole. So I want to say what I said a second ago again so that we can sort of feel the force of it. Saying Jesus is Lord means we have to call into question all of our other allegiances. Your allegiance to your spouse and your children ultimately has to come underneath your allegiance to Jesus. Your allegiance to an ideology ultimately has to come underneath of your allegiance to Jesus. 
Your allegiance to being a hard worker and a good employee must ultimately be submissive to your allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Your allegiance to a fitness routine or a diet regimen must ultimately be underneath your allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Your allegiance to yourself, to getting what you want, to a life that you find to be happy, ultimately comes underneath your allegiance to Jesus. When we say Jesus is Lord, we are making a dangerous thing. Because we are saying that we are open to anything in our life besides Him being taken away. I kind of wish he just meant most of the stuff. I kind of wish he just meant, you know, a lot of bacon. I, I wish that I could I wish that I could keep allegiance to two or three things in my life that I really love and Jesus be in the mix. That's that's ultimately where our hearts tend to go. We want Jesus to be in the mix with all of these things that we give our allegiance to. I want to be able to have Jesus and my political party and my family. You know what? I'll take those three. If I can have those three, I'm going to... Yeah. And Jesus says, no, I am Lord. I am King. There is no one beside me. And so as we look at Jesus' sort of role as prophet, priest, and king, one of the things we see is that we don't treat him as if he is Lord. This is true of us this morning, whether or not we are Christians. This is true of me. There are so many times that my allegiance is divided. That the things that are closest to me are the things that I am most most allegiant to. Look at your habits and your rituals. Look at the things that if you said, if this was taken away, my life would be crushed. Those are ultimately the things that are your Lord. The things that are my Lord. But the good news is, is that Jesus dies for us who do not always treat Him as Lord. And that His sacrifice is enough Just as much as sort of the king and prophet make us look at our lives, examine our lives, and see that we don't measure up, Jesus as the anointed high priest, as the great high priest who has gone before us, reminds us that his sacrifice was enough. When a priest was on duty in the Old Testament, they did a lot of things. One thing they didn't do was sit down. When they were on duty, they worked and kept going and kept going because their job was never done. When Jesus returns to his Father, the first thing he promptly does is sit down. So he is our priest who is sitting. Why? Because it is finished. Because he is done. 
Because the cross has paid for all of our divided allegiances. The cross has made atonement. If we will confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our great high priest has sat down because he has truly accomplished bringing you and I back to him. So as we think about this, one of the things that I want us to sort of walk away with is this. Jesus is Lord. And by saying that, we are saying that we owe allegiance to Him and Him alone. But the way that Jesus is Lord as prophet critiquing us, as priest reconciling us, as king showing us a new way to live, can remind us that when we do find Him to be the thing that we are most enamored by, most affectionate towards, we find our most satisfaction. All those other things that we try to make our Lord will never satisfy. And yet, when we turn to Jesus, He is the only one who can truly satisfy.